mention some of the words either found in the book of Revelation or described in the book of Revelation, and you'll get a reaction from just about anybody. Whether or not a person spent their time in church or they're agnostic, just mention words like the rapture, and you'll get an opinion. Mention the number 666, and they'll look at you twice and have an opinion. In fact, I read... Um, I'd heard about it and and, and found this, that uh, recently Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico successfully gained permission in 2003 to change Highway 666 to Highway 491. You might wonder, what was somebody thinking the name of Highway 666? Who's going to travel that? Uh, Well, it had been named that because in 1923 when they named it, it was simply the sixth branch or spur off of Interstate 66. And they spent uh, decades trying to get rid of it. Finally granted the right to change the road name. Not because of superstition, by the way, or because they were concerned about the coming Antichrist, but because they simply couldn't keep the highway signs from being stolen. (laughs) People just wanted to have it in their own homes, I guess, mounted on the walls in their bedrooms for whatever reason. Well, just about everybody knows what words like Rapture and Antichrist and 666 have to do with end times. Another word that captures certainly the attention of the world, perhaps as much as any other word from the book of Revelation, is the word Armageddon. Just about everyone knows that the word Armageddon has something to do with the end of the world. For those who are a little more informed, we'll know that it's a reference to a location and a coming final world war. And we're now in a series beginning today that will take us right through the battle of, of Armageddon. Speculations certainly abound in our world today about this. In fact, I, I went to one website as I was just Googling in the Word. One website spent all kinds of time and artwork and, and uh, lots of artistic design to prove that Armageddon was coming in 2007. And I guess he spent so much time on the website he didn't want to pull it down after it was proven not to be true. The latest rage in what we could call Armageddon fever, uh, I, perhaps you've heard about this, I certainly have. I've seen the, you know, those magazines and tabloids at the grocery store and stop, read, maybe even buy one to get further enlightened. But one of the latest rages is the calendar of the ancient Mayan civilization. Perhaps you've read about this as well. The Mayans believed, the Mayans believed that time cycled and old world orders at the end of a cycle were destroyed by the gods and new world orders were created by the gods. And the end, according to their calendar, of the latest cycle is December 21, 2012. Remember that date, December 21, 2000. Save your Christmas shopping until after that date in case it's true. No need to spend time and money. Listen, as we approach the end of 2012, guaranteed there will be more books, more ink spilled, more speculations, uh, more amulets and charms sold, even pseudo-Bible scholars cashing in on the hysteria as the world potentially comes to an end. Could it be the ending of civilization as we know it and the beginning of another Frankly, all of that talk has within it seeds of truth, right? Time will reach a new cycle. 
as God, the true and living God, comes to destroy the kingdom of Babylon and her allies, effectively the capital of the Antichrist, and he launches, he, the true living God, launches his millennial reign. There is a coming day when the kingdoms of this world will collapse and God the Son will rule a civilization on earth that is vastly superior to the one we now inhabit and experience. And by the way, I can say with, with great authority, although I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, that it won't have anything to do with the year 2012. The predicted seven-year tribulation, which begins by a world ruler signing a peace treaty with Israel, has not yet happened. Is there peace in the Middle East? As of yesterday, the answer was no. And that tribulation period engages then for seven years. So Armageddon is at least seven years away and more. So even if the rapture occurred today and the tribulation period began soon after, the earliest date for Armageddon would be 2016. I'm not recommending that as a date, of course. But if you're looking for signs of the coming battle of Armageddon, it won't have anything to do with Christmas shopping, though that is an, an, a, a battle. Uh, it, it will have nothing to do with the close of 2012. In fact, what will happen on planet Earth just before God the Son returns to establish his kingdom, defeating the armies uh, at Armageddon, has already been spelled out for us clearly in the book of Revelation. And John will deliver to us the details of the rise and fall of Babylon. We'll have it in living color. Details of the, of the final cataclysmic events that wrap up the final days of civilization as we know it. And the kingdom which follows as Christ returns with his church to set up the millennial kingdom. By the way, I'll say one more comment about the Mayan calendar and civilization. As I did a little more research on this, more than I can share with you, I did discover that they believe this cycle of time would actually repeat itself. So you'll hear a lot of hysteria about the end of the world, but what the Mayans actually believed is that that cycle would end and it would start all over again. And they believe that the clue to grasping power for the future was understanding what had happened in the past. They believed then that they could, by understanding the past, control their future. And isn't that the desire of the heart of man? To control our future. This was their secret. This was their way of attempting to do that. And isn't it ironic that the Mayan civilization does not exist today, even though the cycle has not yet run out for them? All that's left are the ruins of this massive civilization and the remnants of their astrology and idolatry. They were not in control after all, no matter how much they devoted their attention to the orbits of Venus and Mars and Jupiter. No matter how extensively they developed their calendars, their time ran out before the calendar ran out. No matter how passionately they believed they could control their future by knowing their past. So John, the apostle, will reveal to us all that as the last civilizations of the world rush toward this, this climactic battle, the battle of Armageddon, mankind will not be in control. 
but God will be. The kingdoms of this world pass away, but the kingdom of our Christ is forever. Amen? Now, beginning with Revelation chapter 16, seven angels, we were previewed in chapter 15, have stepped forward, and now chapter 16 gives us the details as they step forward with seven bowls filled, as it were, with the wrath of God to be poured out in one final series of events just before Christ splits the skies open in his triumphal return to establish his kingdom. Look at verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, the naos, the holy of holies, saying to these seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now this scene is both figurative and literal. The bowls are literal bowls, but they figuratively express the pouring out, as it were, of elements seen as the wrath of God. This scene then personifies wrath as if it were some kind of liquid in these bowls that these angels are carrying with some ceremony. The language implies some kind of ceremony as they file out of the Holy of Holies to distribute the wrath of God, representing the law of God, which has been broken. By the way, these bowls are shallow saucers. The Greek word is fiale, which refers to a wide, shallow bowl, much like a saucer, like the one you might pour milk into for your cat if you have one pity. <laughs> That's not in the text. Let me go back to it. All right. Let me, let me give you four categorical observations. I know you want to dive in, but let me give you four categorical observations about these bowls that will help make sense of them as we go through them. Number one, they are rapidly delivered, rapidly delivered. All of this will affect the earth and the human race over the course of a few days, a few weeks at best. The language implies that one bowl after another will be poured out without any delay. And they are poured, by the way. The verb indicates they're not dripped or, or lightly spilled. They're literally as if they're turned upside down suddenly and poured. That leads me to the second observation that you need to understand. These bowls are cumulatively distressing. With only a brief pause in verse 5, these bowls are poured out one after another, adding judgment upon judgment, horror upon horror. These bowls, you need to understand within this second observation, are all supernaturally delivered. Uh, God uses his angels uh, to touch the earth, and we've seen angels doing his bidding throughout the book of Revelation. This text does not in any way, shape, or form tolerate the attempts of writers that I've read who, who try to give this a purely natural explanation. They will hit far too rapidly for any explanation other than that they come from God himself. 
much like the plagues of Egypt. But because there is delay in the plagues of Egypt, there are all sorts of scientific explanations. Maybe you've read the Reader's Digest version. In fact, I read it in the Reader's Digest. In the Exodus, how the plagues all began with a volcanic eruption, which covered the light of the sun, the water turned poisonous and red for some reason, which drove frogs inland and their, and their dying bred flies and gnats, which killed cattle and infected people and, and uh, on and on. Of course, they have to generalize the effects of the plague so that one in every household seemed to die. Even though the Bible specifically attributed the plagues to the miraculous power of God through his servant Moses, including the killing of every firstborn from every family who refused to follow the protecting plan of God, which foreshadowed the atoning work of Christ as they put blood on the doorposts of their homes and found therein safety. Never mind all that. There has to be a scientific explanation for this natural phenomena. You can no more explain these events apart from the hand of God than you can explain so many other things in the Bible. Certainly the miraculous events which the naturalist wants to void from Scripture. I mean, just try, apart from the hand of God, explaining the creation of the new heaven and new earth. I mean, just explain a city made of transparent glass or gold, looking like glass, Revelation 21. Explain single gates of that city, all carved, each one from a single pearl. I mean, are there some kind of monster oysters working those things up now as we speak? While you're at it, explain the resurrection of Lazarus. Wrap tightly. To breathe would be like you breathing through a pillow, smothering your face. Then he's dead for four days with nothing to eat or drink. It cannot be explained apart from the voice of sovereign God. Explain the resurrection of Christ while you're at it. In fact, explain the miracle. If you want an easier one, we'll back up from the resurrection because that's, there aren't people running around trying to manufacture that one again. Just explain Christ walking on the stormy waves of the sea toward the boat where the disciples were. I did read a few months ago an explanation. Scientists have been able to track weather patterns dating back to the time of Christ and now believe there was a... This is, I actually read this in a journal. They now believe that there was a sudden freeze and Christ actually walked on floating pieces of ice. <laughs> of course. Peter evidently then tried it too, but he slipped. He didn't sink. That explains it. Ladies and gentlemen, these bowls of wrath are the supernatural work of God through his created universe where he actually violates the laws of nature he created. And you will see he has the right to do that. He will turn nature upside down. In fact, he will use nature to punish man, as we'll see. A third observation is this. They are specifically directed. You will notice as we look through this that in verse 2, only the followers of the Antichrist are plagued with these sores. It seems possible that the fifth bowl of darkness in verse 10 only affects the, the throne or the kingdom of the Antichrist, although I would toss my hat in with those who, who believe that his kingdom is global. But there seems to be 
some protection, at least from the first one, for those who truly do believe. They will be spared some of the effects, although every believer will be affected either directly or indirectly from every act of judgment. Number four, this is my fourth observation. These bowls of judgment are not only rapidly delivered and cumulatively distressing and specifically directed, they are fourthly terminally destructive. As you and I will discover, life on the planet will change for everyone, unbeliever and believer, those who've come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. Water's going to run out. It's going to run out for everybody. Now, there isn't anything in the text that says that a believer will touch the blood that is, was once water and it will turn back into water. Food sources and the ecosystems of the planet will be tragically and terribly disrupted. In fact, without the intervention of Christ returning to the planet, soon after these bold judgments are poured out, and that's one of the reasons I think they have to be poured out quickly, no one would survive any of it. But Christ does return, and he does set up his kingdom with his capital in the New Jerusalem, and though we're not told, there's plenty of evidence with what happens in the kingdom to assume that God not only miraculously turns nature upside down, he writes it back. Turns the oceans and seas back to clean sources of water. The truth is, if he didn't, earth would be uninhabitable. Yet we know that Christ will reign on the earth with his bride, the church he brings with him, and millions of people who've accepted the gospel during the tribulation who will enter this millennial kingdom as Revelation 20 reveals. Okay, enough of the overview. Now let's take a closer look at this final series of judgments from the hand of of a holy God. Bowl number one, simply put, unbelievers are plagued with painful sores. Look at verse two. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth And it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people. What people? The people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The word translated sores is the Greek word helkos, which gives us our word abscess. In fact, the word in the Latin language gives us our word ulcer. It describes festering painful, incurable, oozing, ulcerous sores. This is a hideous act of God's judgment. This is the same word, by the way, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for the sores inflicted upon Pharaoh's magicians as Moses demanded the release of the people in Exodus chapter 9. These sores are running painful, inflamed sores that cover the bodies of those who bow to the image of, of the Antichrist. And they do not then affect believers, John writes here. It only affects those who have the mark of the beast. This is part of God's warning through his angel earlier in Revelation where he warned them, don't take the mark. If you do, you will drink unmixed, that is undiluted wrath from God. And those who refuse now suffer in what is a symbol of their coming eternal physical suffering in hell. Now it also serves as a further warning to those who have yet to bow to his image. And many have not yet bowed. 
millions from every tongue, tribe, and nation have not yet bowed and won't. They'll enter the kingdom having believed in Christ. And so this becomes then not only a warning to not do it, but it becomes an exposure of the Antichrist as a false Messiah. Uh, in, in other words, it's saying, look, he, look at what happens to the followers of the Antichrist. They're covered with these running ulcers, these abscesses, and he, he cannot heal them. He is a false physician, even though he has attempted to masquerade as the divine physician. He's a fraud. And this will signal, I believe, to the world that he is not the God he claims to be and it will play a role in his undoing as armies from the east will dare to defy him as they soon will. Let's go to bowl number two. The ocean seas are turned into blood. Look at verse three. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. Now, if you notice this carefully, this translation put well did not say that the sea became like the blood of a dead man. It said it became blood. What kind of blood? Blood like a dead man. The Greek word, in fact, used here for blood is the word haima, which gives us our word hema or hematology, which is the study of the function and nature of blood. This is literal blood. As unbelievable as it might sound, the oceans of the world become in an instant blood. Like the blood of a corpse, congealing, coagulating, thickening, dark blood. We cannot imagine the horror of this judgment. We cannot imagine the corpses of sea mammals and creatures and fish piled on shore and floating dead upon the water's surfaces. Everything having to do with the ocean will grind to a sudden halt. The effects of the food supply of the world will be catastrophic. Some conjecture that these bold judgments are simply a restating of earlier judgments. They do sound familiar. However, on closer inspection, the earlier judgment we read in chapter 8 where water was turned to blood, if you remember, it affected only a third of the sea, killing only a third of the sea creatures. This one is comprehensive. This one affects all the large bodies of water and every living sea animal. Can you imagine the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean? And that's all the ones I can remember. There are a few more, I think. <laughs> immediately, this is what happens when I get off notes. Immediately becomes, in an instant, blood. One believing scientist wrote, In this toxic ocean, nothing can survive. And soon all the billions of fishes and marine mammals and marine reptiles and the innumerable varieties of marine and invertebrates will perish, thus still further poisoning the oceans and contaminating the seashores of the world. In this present world, sea organisms provide the basis for the world's great food chains, and the ocean itself is the anchor of the Earth's essential cycle. The sea and its creatures had once been a spring of life, now it becomes a turgid pool of death. This is the wrath of God 
poured out. The third bowl is fresh water sources turned into blood. Look, look, if it isn't bad enough, another angel now steps forward. Look at verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, that is other fresh water sources, and they became blood. Not like blood, they became haima. They became blood. So if anybody's thinking, well, you know, that ocean thing is really bad, but I live in Kansas. I'm away from that. Or I live in Colorado. I'm fairly insulated. We still have rivers and and melting snow and drinking water and springs and and lakes. So we're going to be all right. No, think again. This is a comprehensive, miraculous act of God so that at his command, through his angel, all water sources turn into blood. This is comprehensive, global Terror. All inland water affected, leaving people with nothing to drink. Listen, unless God miraculously reverses his judgment, mankind cannot survive without water. And before long, all bottled water, drinks of every kind, uh, water stored in tankers, water stored in towers, Water of any and all forms will run out. This becomes then the global scene of an earlier warning of God's judgment upon the Egyptians. Because they hardened their hearts through their leader, Pharaoh. You remember how one of those plagues was the turning of the Nile River into literal blood. The contamination here, however, is comprehensive, global. The world's oceans Can you imagine the environmentalist's nightmare? But the destruction of the remaining freshwater supplies is going to be even more staggering. This is catastrophic. This is a blow to fallen humanity who believe they were worshiping their God. No. The true God who reigns with a word has taken everything they need effectively to survive away. One author put it this way when he wrote, this effectively signals the death of our planet and the human race. This is so horrific. This is unimaginable. The stench alone, catastrophic. And now the nightmare of dying of thirst is a reality facing the human race. And the entire planet. Now people are going to certainly wonder how God could do something like this if he is indeed a God of compassion and a God of love and a God of grace. How could he do this? So God anticipates that kind of question following this kind of catastrophic judgment. In fact, about the time you think mankind is going to ask this question and get some kind of explanation... Even though they're warned earlier, you bow to this man and the act of judgment will come. You're going to drink unmixed fury from God. God does condescend and he through an angel, another angel, delivers an explanation which effectively defends his character. Look at verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters, that is the angel given authority over the waters, saying... Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, 
because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. How terrifying are these words to to the human race? This is poetic justice. In fact, even though I believe fully in the wrath of God, and in fact I cling to the wrath of God having been played out in the body and life of Christ, on my behalf and yours who believe, still for me to read these words and come to the end of it, where he says, and they deserve it, is startling to me. They deserve it. They poured out the blood of Christ's followers. So now God pours out blood. The same Greek word for pour is used in this paragraph. They poured out the blood of the saints. God pours out his wrath. Uh, They poured out uh, the blood of those who would follow Christ. This has been a bloodbath for those who belong to Christ. And now God bathes them in blood. This is poetic justice. This is the ultimate illustration of sowing and reaping like never before. This is staggering. This is greater by far than Pharaoh attempting to have all the Hebrew babies who were boys, male babies, thrown into the river to drown only to watch his own army drown. This poetic justice is greater than Haman, who built a gallows uh, upon which to hang Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, and, and, and Haman himself to a turn of events. And that act of poetic justice is revealed, and he himself hangs by the neck until dead. The poetic justice in Revelation is greater than Saul who rebelled against God, refusing to execute in God's justice the Amalekites, only to die then later in a battle with the Amalekites. Here in this apocalyptic scene, we have the ultimate poetic justice. The forces of Antichrist who have shed the blood of the believers now have only blood to drink. They have been bloodthirsty in their killing of the saints. And now they are surrounded by blood, blood, and more blood. But it's actually deeper than that. The human race has effectively dismissed the true and living Christ. Who shed his blood on their behalf. And they have rejected his blood and now they have nothing but blood. Which cannot save them. But it's even more than that. They deny the creator and are now punished at the hands of creation. They refuse the healer and now they suffer incurable boils and sores. They refused to follow the one who began his public ministry by turning water into what? Into wine. Who now in this judgment turns water into blood. They tread upon the blood of Christ and shed the blood of his saints and now they have only blood. It's as if they're floating in blood. And they deserve it. Isn't that startling to read? They deserve it. 
Even those of us who believe in the wrath of God find that hard to read. And they deserve it. It's a precursor of that day when we will, with Christ, see the judgment of all those who disbelieve thrown into hell and understand fully. And they deserve it. The truth is we all deserve the judgment of God, do we not? We all have rebelled. We all have violated the law of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. The just and right payment for being a sinner is death. And we will experience physical death, but not eternal torment and suffering. Why? The wages of sin is death, but praise God for that little conjunction. It has changed eternity for us who believe. The just payment for sin is death, but the free gift of God is everlasting or eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We all deserve the judgment of God. But it came upon Christ and we who have accepted Christ go free. It's interesting how Paul used the same word for poor, P-O-U-R, used here in Revelation for the bulls pouring out the wrath of God when he wrote in Romans 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. It's even more ironic to discover for me that this word is also used in Acts chapter 2 where we're told that God poured out upon those who believed his Holy Spirit. In other words, for those who believe, we have a pouring. We have the love of God poured out into our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit poured into our lives. For those who do not believe, they will experience the wrath of God poured out against them. It is the height of poetic justice. And the angel says, God is right God is true in judging the world in this way. In the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis 18, Abraham asked this rhetorical question. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? In the last book of the Bible, the angel answers here. Righteous are you, O Holy One, because you judge these things. Verse 7 Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. In other words, you do what is right. You don't play by our rules. We play by yours. Matthew Henry, a century ago, a great commentator, wrote about this text. He said, you know, the unbelieving world thinks that everything belongs to them. This is their earth. This is their air, their sea, their rivers, their world. They believe they alone have the right to determine and judge. And it's true. But the angel here announces the truth about God. This is his earth. This is his air. These are his oceans. These are his seas and lakes. This is his animal creation. This is his created human race. And he alone has the right to judge and determine as sovereign Lord. This is my father.
Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, will be satisfied, and earth and heaven become one. So in this last series of judgments that we are just introducing today, we're immediately given the truth. God owns the world. God does what is right. Sin deserves judgment. And you here today can also hear within this an invitation. Surrender now to the sovereign. That's the invitation. He owns everything. He owns you. And he will have the right to judge and determine your eternal existence. So, surrender to him now while there is time for his grace to be poured out and his love to be poured out and his spirit to be poured out into your life and heart. Come to the Savior. He will forgive everything. God owns everything. Christ will forgive everything. Receive from him this free gift of salvation. Why? Because how can you? Well, he has already paid for everything. Amen? Instead of having future judgment poured out upon you. In fact, you may be alive when this occurs. Should the rapture happen soon. Have the love of God poured out upon your heart. And the grace of God lavished upon you. And the Holy Spirit given freely to you. As you become a part of the body of Christ. As you join the wedding procession. And you leave the funeral march. Father, I pray that those who are headed for disaster. Everlasting torment. Judgment. In which your servant Paul said, before you at that holy tribunal, every mouth will be closed. There will be no excuses. There will be no loopholes. The deeds of mankind will find their deserved judgment as the books are open. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day of salvation. Father, I pray for everyone that have not surrendered to the sovereign, that have not run to the Savior. Today, my friend, maybe that's you. You will say, Lord Jesus, I place my faith in you alone. I'm a sinner. I deserve this judgment. My mouth is closed, as it were. No more excuses. You have the right to rule and reign and and you will rule and reign over everyone, either in heaven or hell. You are sovereign in both destinies. But I want to be with you in heaven. I want to be with you in this coming kingdom. I want to be forgiven, redeemed, justified, adopted, sealed, I want to become a child of God. Upon the authority of Scripture, if that's along the lines of what you've just prayed, you now belong to Him in this special way. As a child of His love, not of His wrath. For those of us who believe the service is determined, dedicated, developed just for us, as we, following the example of the early church, meet together, dedicating our hearts and lives and minds to the teaching of Scripture and 
Let's make sure we thank the Lord right now, would you? That the wrath of God was fully poured out on the Son of God and He bore the penalty for all your sin. And He opened your eyes, which had been blinded by the God of this world, and you believed. Would you thank Him for that grace and love? We thank you, Father, that our lives are not dictated by some man-made calendar, some cycle of time created by some ancient civilization. You own the times. You rule as sovereign. Father, would you help us this week to open our hearts and lives to the full and freeing reign of you in every area, every department, every room, every cubicle, wherever we are, on campus, in the home, at work, that people might know through what we say and how we live that we belong to the true and living God whom we praise. Thank you for allowing us to praise you again today as an assembly of called out ones redeemed by the blood of our Christ, our Savior, our Messiah. Thank you.